0: BLOB TALK RADIO Hello and welcome into the Computer America Show. We are the nation's longest running nationally syndicated radio talk show On computers and technology. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Crossman, and I hope all of you are having a wonderful day. Because we have a wonderful show planned for you. Where today we are doing computer technology news. Uh, normally it would be Scott Schober. He, if you are marking your calendars, he is scheduled for oh, I believe next Tuesday. So reset everything. And we're gonna have a clean slate next Tuesday with again Scott Schober, our cybersecurity expert. So, uh, let's see, a couple of things before we get started, including ComputerAmerica.com. That's where you'll find everything from past shows to show notes to the social media contest brought to you by Logitech. You can see that right here on the right side of the screen. You can also see a number of things, including, uh, let's see, any reviews that we do, any articles, uh, any videos that we talk about. Everything, anything will be right there at our homepage. And while you're there, be sure to check out the live video stream brought to you by OWC and so much more. So yeah, you can uh, you can find all that at ComputerAmerica.com. And in the meantime, welcome into the program for everyone out there listening on IRN. Welcome into the show. This is our live program. Do it four to five Eastern, Monday through Friday, and more than happy to do it. So. Today on the program, we are going to do computer and technology news, and yeah, so we have lots and lots of articles, some that you're definitely going to want to hear about. Some of them, I'll be honest with you, a little, uh, you know, a little giving on the tech side because we are definitely going to talk about the recent findings about the liquid water on Mars. And hey, you know, we, uh, I think pop culture in general has had a severe fascination with the idea of martians and this may be the best example yet of being able to well find martians so all that and more computer and technology news brought to you by owc let's get things going So, and welcome into uh, Computer Technology News, and let's go ahead and start with, again, I think kind of one of the biggest implications uh, and talk about, you know, there are some qualifiers here, but it, it really, the announcement boils down to, get it boils down, water, the announcement truly does boil down to the fact that, well, they found a large mass of liquid water on Mars, or Rather, I guess a little, uh, uh, to, a little more accurate. They found a large mass of water under Mars or in Mars. And after years of observation and analysis, researchers announced today that they have put uh, that they have identified liquid water on Mars. And here's the cool part: we're not talking about a puddle that the Curiosity rover accidentally fell into, uh, just its luck. No, they found a lot of it. And it's about a mile underground. So, you know, to put that into perspective for us earthlings, uh, that's about the depth of most oil drilling rigs. So if you, you know, hey, if you ever owned an oil oil well, then you are more than familiar with how far down this water is. But, hey, water is water. Life is very resilient. And if there is water, there is a good chance of life. So, And they said it is likely only liquid because it is briny, so that means high salt, high salt content, and under great pressure. So, you know, uh, all that pressure add, you know, adds a bit of heat to it, and uh, obviously very hostile environments, but that's nothing life can't handle. So they said that this groundbreaking discovery could change both our understanding of the red planet and the plans to one day go ourselves. So this is, uh, you know, pulling this article from uh, from TechCrunch, De- Devin Coldaway, but I'll be honest, this was a big announcement made by, uh, I believe, NASA, of course, you know, kind of does it. Well, no, actually, I take it back. Not even NASA. See, here's me just assuming things and being wrong. This was actually... Uh, disclosed by Italian researchers from a variety of institutions, led by Roberto Orese Orse. I have no idea. At the at the institute at the National Institute for Astrophysics in I am horrible with names. Uh, Baloney. I don't know. Uh, Uh, Bologna, Bologna, they said that the paper paper describing their work detecting and characterizing the water was published today in the journal Science. And you you can see some images here if you're looking at them, uh, if you're looking at the video portion, if you're not, uh, this is pretty much, you can see some grainy black and white images with some parts highlighted, the highlighted parts uh, about a mile down beneath the crust happens to be, well, water. And they used it by uh, having radar on one of the satellites that are orbiting Mars. And yeah, check that out. About a mile down, they were able to detect what could be none other than water. So they said, but whether the conditions necessary are actually present on the planet, those to be for life, and our time has been a matter of debate, and that debate that is settled with today's finding. Actually, Uh, the conditions necessary for liquid water today. So uh, just to let you know what we kind of knew before, we knew at some point in the past Mars had a lot going on. We knew that it had an atmosphere. We knew that it had plate tectonics that had stopped at some point. We knew that there there was liquid water on the planet at some point because sediment was uh, moved in such a way that could only be caused by water. And so there was a lot of debate about whether or not Mars currently held liquid water. And, you know, when you take a picture of sediment that had been moved, you can say, yeah, cool, that's great. It had water at one point, but if that was 20 million years ago, what good does that do us now? Well, that debate is finally put to rest because even if it's a mile down and not on the planet's surface, Mars does indeed have liquid water. So they said that this condition on Earth only happens when you observe subglacial water like in Antarctica or over places like Lake Volstek, uh, uh, Vostok. Okay? And saying that we were for a long time debating if this was also the case in Mars, it was a long investigation which required a lot of effort. Yeah, a lot of effort, and uh, so, let me see, let me see, let me see. So, oh, I'm sorry, one second, there we go. So, yeah, and they're saying in a supplementary text, they detailed the work, and blah, blah, blah. Essentially, they're scientists, and they did sciency things. They drew conclusion or they drew hypotheses, and then drew conclusions, and, yeah, seems like their data is pretty sound, and everyone's pretty much accepting That Mars has liquid water. So I think that's one of the biggest announcements for today. And while that probably doesn't affect us in the here and now, it might just affect how we, you know, and it's, you know, science fiction, but it's how we're going to settle Mars in the future. Because if you don't have to bring your own water, then you either have to create it or you have to find it. And creating it, pretty hard. Finding it, hey we finally found it so that's definitely good all right so there's that article let's see let's see let's Let's talk about uh yeah let's talk about this one so this is another kind of trend i've been following for a while if you can tell i am a pretty big fan of food and i know i know that there's a lot of us out there who have probably too much fascination with food but Hey, it is what it is. And, you know, I'm I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan. Uh, I do eat meat. And while I don't have that innate guilt that I probably should have, I will say that it's, you know, I, I don't eat things and think, thank goodness someone had to kill something for me to eat this burger. I say, you know, I'm eating this burger is what it is. And I push that guilt off deep down inside and I ignore it. I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, they don't eat something and they're eating something because they're killing something. They're eating something because, you know, they need to eat and it's tasty. So even though I am not a vegetarian, one trend coming out of uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and... You know, I don't. I don't even want to call it like a hippie movement because it's very high tech in the way that they're doing it. But it's this cultural transformation that will happen when we find a suitable replacement for beef. Beef is actually a huge problem in our society, and there's really not a, a lot of ways to look at it, uh, from the byproducts to the immense amount of uh, farmland that it takes to sustain our meat population to the clear cutting of the Amazon forest so that Brazilians can raise more, more beef. Uh, The beef industry causes a lot of disruption to a lot of ecosystems. So, you know, from environmental standpoint, from just a guilt standpoint, from a lot of different standpoints, I have been keeping an eye on meat substitutes and the Holy grail, like the ultimate, ultimate meat replacement, is the idea that you grow your beef in a giant, uh, you know, they call them reactors, but in reality they're just giant pots that are, you know, industrial size, and they essentially grow muscle tissue that will eventually be meat and any kind of meat that you want. That's the holy grail is that it's still meat, but it never comes from a living organism, and it's much, much easier and cost-efficient to produce. So, in the meantime, they are coming up with some other alternatives, and one of them is this thing called Impossible Burgers. It's been under a few different names. It uh, uses a very special kind of ingredient. I want to say it's like hemo something or other, and it's a protein that's commonly found in soy plants' roots, so it's soy, but it's a different type of soy, and they're able to engineer in a way where a lot of veggie burgers run into the situation where when you eat it, you're like, you know, that's a good veggie burger. That's a, that's a pretty crappy burger, but it's a good veggie burger. That's a situation that will cause people to not even consider veggie burgers. Hey, you know, it's just not as good. It's just not tasty. And, you know, if you have the choice and they cost the same, why would you even bother? Well, Impossible Foods maybe has a replacement and a big victory. I believe this came out yesterday talking about the fact that, well, they just got food and drug administration approval. Yay. They just got approval so that their plant-based meat is not harmful for human consumption. Because if this was super harmful, then, hey, yeah, stops that in its tracks. But here we go. And this coming to us from in Engadget, uh, Mariella Moon, talking about how the FDA declares meat-free impossible burger safe to eat. And you can see the picture there on the screen. Anyone out, out there who's just listening, this burger looks like a medium-rare burger. And the innards look like ground beef. You know, it has that kind of clumpy, stringy texture to it. Uh, it does not look like a pressed rice patty like some other veggie burgers I've had. Uh, no, it looks it looks like meat, and supposedly it tastes like meat. And now it uh, it won't kill you just like regular old meat, although you know red meat, whatever. So they said that uh, the FDA responded with concerns that its key ingredient, which is called leg hemoglobin, leg hemoglobin. There you go. Uh, might cause allergies and other adverse effects. Well, the protein is commonly found in soy plant roots, but since we don't typically eat that part of the plant, the FDA had reservations about its safety. And in response, the company sent in more info, including results from a rat feeding study, which convinced the agency to declare the plant based meat is generally recognized as safe. Woohoo! And you can see all the ingredients there. Uh, You know, they kind of tweeted out a picture. And it looks like, uh, you know, hey, everything is vegetarian. Everything's on the up and up. And they said, according to Impossible Foods, the rat feeding study proves that consuming the ingredient in amounts much, much more than our normal dietary exposure to it wouldn't produce any bad side effects. So we've seen this before with, uh, with rice studies. Mice studies, mice and rats makes rice, Uh, my studies is that they'll feed uh, these animals like two times, three times their body weight in a certain ingredient, in a certain product, and that's why in some cases you say, you know, you may see these warnings about, you know, it may cause cancer or may cause this problem, that problem, Uh, even if in normal amounts to normal people, if it was consumed, it would never cause these side effects products still have to label themselves as you know dangerous or carcinogenic or what have you because there's a slim chance someone will be exposed to that much of that product and they have to solicit it this beats even that this shows no adverse risk even in great quantities so check that out now they said that uh, saying that those are the most salient points in the company's application because Impossible Burgers wouldn't be what they are without soy leg, leg hemoglobin. And the protein carries the iron containing molecule called heme, which gives the meat substitute its meat-like taste and even makes it bleed like the real thing. To be fair, though, whenever you press a burger, and again, I've, I love food, so I know this. When you press a burger and that red liquid comes out. That's not blood. Uh, blood is not in the meat. If there was blood in, in your meat, it would spoil it and that would be that would be the end. It would never ship. It would never make it to your dinner table. It's not blood. But it is a special moisture mixing with proteins and and it uh leaks out. And people think it's blood, but you know, essentially it's not the heme in the, like, hemoglobin, uh, globin, globin, whatever, uh, has the same kind of texture, has the same kind of taste, and it will give you the same feeling that even though this burger never came from an animal, I've heard a lot of people say it's close enough. Like, if I, I believe the way that a lot of people describe tasting or eating one of these burgers is that you're not going to think it's beef. You're going to bite into it, you're going to chew it, you're going to swallow it, and you're going to say, that's pretty good. What is that? And they might tell you buffalo, they might tell you something stupid like ostrich or kangaroo or whatever. And essentially, you'll think it's a different kind of protein you've never had before, but it's not quite beef, but it's not bad. That's awesome. So while the FDA never prohibited the company from conducting business, they said that, uh, by the way, Impossible Burgers are available in 3,000 locations across the country, including White Castle. It believes the agency's no questions letter could change people's perception of the product. So, if uh, if people want to give Impossible Burger a shot, then the company's meat substitute could become more widely available in the future. But again, this is just something that I love to follow up on because. Well, I still eat meat, and I don't have that much guilt over it. As soon as there's something that replaces it and it's guilt-free, it's cheap, it tastes just as good, I will jump ship and never look back. So it's a uh, hey, pretty good day for Impossible Foods and the Impossible Burger. All right, so we went from Mars and water and food let's go to something a little bit more, uh, all right, a little bit more bizarre. You know, if it wasn't the meatless burger, if it wasn't the uh, water on Mars, how about this one? So this one comes to uh, to the effect of China. And this is a story that we didn't cover yesterday, and I guess all the better. And that has to do with the fact that, well, Yesterday, there was a news article talking about the fact that Facebook had a subsidiary that would operate in in China, and that's a pretty big deal because China, while it's a large, large market, they have like 1.3 billion people, and they are ever-growing, ever-connected, and, well, not a lot of ways to put it, ever-controlled by their own government. And Facebook had been walled out. While Facebook operates freely in most, if not all of the other world, uh, you know, all the other developed world, China has been Facebook resistant. Well, it came as a shock yesterday when a startup incubator, quote unquote, kind of deal uh, was approved by the Chinese government for Facebook to operate within the country. And, again, didn't cover the story, but it was a shock. People were, again, I guess, kind of shocked. And that led to today's story, where China pulls the approval for Facebook Startup Incubator. So easy come, easy go. And saying that its approval for a business has already been withdrawn. And this is buying gadgets, John Fingus talking about how so much of facebook's making inroads into china mere hours after regulators gave facebook permission to open a startup incubator in the province of zhejiang has uh, has approval i'm sorry the approval has disappeared and of course a new york a new york times source claims officials have formally formally withdrawn the approval Reportedly, the country's cyberspace administrator was angry that Zhejiang officially hadn't consulted it in earnest before giving Facebook the go ahead. So it seems like someone rubber stamped this when they were not supposed to, and very swiftly, uh, yeah, Facebook was pulled from China. So the so this doesn't rule out another chance for Facebook but it isn't likely to get a second shot in the near future so a couple of things why this matters uh, Facebook is huge Facebook is so huge that they've saturated a lot of markets in the United States in Canada North America Europe uh, in you know in, in a lot of places Facebook has hit its wealth Its saturation point where anyone who's going to use Facebook is currently using it. Anyone who is, uh, you know, anyone who is not currently on Facebook is probably not going to make a Facebook account at this point. If they haven't in the past five to six years, they won't start now. And in fact, we've seen uh, ever since the uh, election meddling, uh, you know, that we hear so much about lately to just Facebook's privacy concerns that have always been uh, floating around, in fact, Facebook in a lot of its current markets is shrinking. Uh, so that's why opening new markets and finding growth in other places is the key for Facebook to maintain its dominance, because it can have two billion yeah, it, it can have two billion users, but it can't stay at two billion users. A social media network is not going to go anywhere if it stays at its current level. And that's why opening up inroads into South America, into Africa, into developing parts of India, into developing parts of China, that's where it's important because that's where the next 3 billion internet users are going to come from. And investors are really banging down Facebook's door saying, hey, we love what you do. We love that you can get our message in front of the right eyeballs and that you can collect data on everyone simultaneously. But you need to keep growing. You need to become the behemoth, monster, old god, uh, Cthulhu type digital entity that we know you really should be. And yeah, that's where Facebook is. Uh, you know, I guess was really excited that they were able to get approval into China. But here we are, pulled pulled just hours later, and I'm sure Facebook's stock reflected this. So Facebook has declined to comment, and officials haven't responded. However, this illustrates the challenge for foreign tech companies entering China, especially when their main business are censored in the country. So, of course, some Officials may see the censorship as a red flag for any presence in China, while others may want to give the company a chance to run separate businesses. And so not that this is likely to stop Facebook from trying. It, uh, it has used all kinds of efforts to get a stake in China, including a secret mobile app and a former government relations leader brought on specifically to improve relations with China. Don't you wish your business was so big that you could hire a former Chinese government official to negotiate with the Chinese government and improve relations? So the company knows that the China market is huge and potentially lucrative, and it doesn't want to be completely left out. China is fast approaching a world superpower. And as much as we are Computer America, as much as we think America has a lot of innovation, tech, what have you, if no other place, and this is something that I've you know, really been picking up uh, on over the past couple of years, more and more industries are relying on China to push certain products, uh, Hollywood in particular. That's why you see these movies that star AAA actors and these weird Chinese actors that you've never heard of before. Um, although I guess that's not saying much. A lot of people haven't heard of a Chinese actor other than uh, Jackie Chan, but still they make these and then they set them in China. They are, you know, they use, uh, you know, kind of like Chinese centric uh, kind of storylines and plot devices Essentially, when it comes to technology, when it comes to Hollywood, pop culture, uh, products, services, don't be surprised when, you know, we're kind of used to everything being held, uh, you know, uh, made and molded and sculpted for North America and Europe. Well, China's fast approaching the point where their market is big enough it can sustain products and services just like North America, just like Europe. And so, again, Facebook they were revoked from operating in China so check that out and yeah it's just how do you plan for that when you finally feel like you get a foothold in China and then hours later pulled out from underneath your feet so all right so there's that let's um yeah, let's go ahead, like two minutes before a break here, and then we're going to jump uh, jump over to a break and then be right back with more computer and technology news brought to you by OWC. But let's go ahead and talk about some of these ne'er-do-wells, some of these players who are not on the up-and-up. And there's a couple. So I think the first one we're going to talk about is this uh, the situation with New York, or at least New York State, threatens to revoke Charter's cable franchise for—oh, I can't say that word on the air—for uh, not speaking the truth. Here we go. I can say that on the air. And this is coming to us from uh, from Tech Dirt and talking about how the New York State and the nation—I'm uh, sorry, New York State and the nation's second biggest cable provider, Charter Spectrum. Aren't getting along very well, and they said that uh, Charter has tried to use the FCC's net neutrality repeal to claim that the states can't hold it accountable for terrible service, but that hasn't been going particularly well. And meanwhile, Charter is also facing heat from the state after the state part, I'm sorry, state public service commission found that Charter routinely misled regulators about its efforts to meet conditions affixed to its $89 billion acquisition of Time Warner Cable and Bright House Networks. I remember those. We talked at length, and one of the, and part of the deal, as the article kind of mentions, I, I recall this, uh, was supposed to expand its service to 145,000 unserved and underserved residential housing units and or businesses within four years. And essentially, what they did was they took 145,000 divided by four and said, hey, you should have a quarter of these hooked up every year. And I believe at the time we last reported on that, they were well under meeting that goal. Like they did like, you know, 10,000 as opposed to like the uh, 40,000 they were supposed to do. So, everyone, the music means we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. More Computer America, computer and technology news right after this. Everyone, stay tuned. And welcome back to the Computer America show. We are the nation's longest running nationally syndicated radio talk show on computers and technology. If you miss any part of today's program, you can, of course, check us out. Uh, wherever podcasts are heard, the podcast of the show is simply uh, – Hey, today's show in their entirety that, uh, you know, that we talk about uh, – well, I'm sorry. It's just today's show in its entirety as we uh, you know, – uh, all right, here we go. Third time's the charm. It's simply today's show in its entirety rebroadcast at your convenience so that if you miss any part of it, if you want to go back and check, or if you want to time shift us, don't worry. We have you covered. There we go. Whew, that was hard. So uh, today, of course, you can check out uh, you know everything that we do there at Computer America. So we're doing computer technology news uh, brought to you by OWC, and today's guest was supposed to be Scott Schober. Uh, some scheduling things happened, and if you wanted to set your calendars to it, next Tuesday we will have Scott Schober uh, here with us. So there you go. Now, we are, of course, doing this uh, I'm sorry, we're doing the story about New York state threatening to revoke Charter's cable franchise. And, you know, I don't think it'll ever happen. I think, uh, unfortunately, there's that phrase too big to fail. Uh, When you are the second largest network operator, it would do you more harm than good to pull their license to operate completely. But obviously New York state is getting fed up with what they've, you know, kind of promised, and what they've delivered, and the disparity between the two. So they said that uh, we were just talking about how, under the conditions of having approved the merger between uh, between Time Warner and Charter, well, they were supposed to hook up about 150,000 underserved and unserved homes in the next four years. And they said that the company was fined $2 million after regulators found it repeatedly tried to pretend it had expanded service to areas that weren't actually upgraded. So, you know, and they have a link to another article there. I recall that Uh, they're taking headcounts of places that they never actually did any improvements to trying to fudge the numbers and all in all, not a good thing. So, they said that uh, things have only gotten uglier from there. Where last week, the New York, uh, let's see, the New York Public, uh, you know, Public Service Commission accused the company of gaslighting its customers after it repeatedly tried to tap dance around the merger obligations despite repeated fines. So the company promised a universe of synergies ahead of the deal, but consumers only received even higher prices and even worse customer service than the company was already known for. (sighs) Who knew that when a company was tasked with providing a better service at a cheaper price, that would be an incredibly hard thing to do in the midst of merging and mixing two different companies and streamlining. Yeah, so... At any rate, the state – so the state commission says charter description may force it to take an almost unheard of action, which is the revocation of the company's cable franchise agreement in the state. So historically, state legislators and regulators are almost comical rubber stamps for the regional broadband monopolies, one of several reasons why American broadband tends to be monumentally terrible in many parts of the country, which it is. You know, uh, it's gotten a lot better recently. If you are in a non-rural uh, city kind of deal, your internet speeds have definitely caught up. We are still far behind many other developed nations, but we're getting better if you are in a rural part of the country, you're pretty much stuck with satellite, and that's about all you have. So, But as we're seeing the state-level net neutrality efforts, the federal assault on broadband consumer protections and accountability appear to have resulted in at least a handful of states growing a spine and actually giving a darn. So obviously the article written by uh, Carl Bode and again from Tech Dirt, we have a link to it in the show notes. So yeah, check that out. It's uh, New York is getting tough on charter. We'll see what happens. So, there's that, and let's see, 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 So there's that story. This part of the show, again, dedicated to companies who are acting uh, duplicitous. I guess would be a good word. Um, maybe just a little bit, uh, you know, mean. I guess would be another word. But check out this one. So Charter, they are what they are. We know what they've done. Yeah, this next one though comes to a surprise and is simply an accusation at this point. Although it has some merit to it, as I understand it, it has to do with the actually open source and um, yeah, actually causing a bit of problem. So this this is from CNET and it's a pretty good article by Sean Keen talking about Mozilla executive says. Google slow down YouTube on non-Chrome browsers. So anything that is not Chrome, and yes, there are things that are not Chrome. Uh, so Internet, uh, I suppose, say Internet Explorer, uh, Microsoft Edge, or Mozilla Firefox, of course, Opera. Essentially, anything that wasn't running a specific architecture, and a and an architecture that is only used and maintained by Google themselves was optimized for YouTube. Everything else was not, and hey, that means, of course, it does not run as efficiently as it would on their own native browser. So before we get started, a couple of things to note. Uh, This has to do with the idea that Google is doing this on purpose. And, I I don't know, It's, it's a hard line to draw because either they have to do a lot of work for their competitors or they have to provide a level of support to their competitors that they're currently not giving. And you can see where it would be in their best interest to simply optimize for themselves, work on themselves, and provide their customers the best experience that they possibly could and you know, leave everything up to everyone else. But don't forget, Google was just hit with a $5 billion uh, fine in the EU for using Android to corner the market on searches due to Google. Google is no stranger to doing anti-competitive practices. This may just be another way that they're doing it. So let's check it out. Saying that uh, a Mozilla executive says that Google's redesign has made YouTube slower on Firefox and Edge, where Chris Peterson, the company's community's technical program manager, tweeted on Tuesday that the video sharing site loads a fifth of the speed on non-Chrome browsers due to his architecture. And saying that uh, YouTube page load is five times slower on Firefox and Edge, than in Chrome, because YouTube's Polymer redesign, so Polymer would be the architecture uh, that is running on, and by the way, it relies on the de- uh, on the deprecated Shadow DOM v0 API that's only implemented in Chrome. You can restore YouTube's faster pre-Polymer designs with an extension that Firefox has put out, but even if you put out an extension, a fix, a patch unless you push to everyone, no one is going to go out and do this on their own because getting word of mouth out, it's uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world. So they said that YouTube's Polymer redesign relies on the deprecated Shadow DOM V0 API, as we mentioned before, and they said that YouTube serves a Shadow DOM polyfill to Firefox and Edge that is, unsurprisingly, slower than Chrome's native implementation. And he says that on my laptop, initial page load takes five seconds with the polyfill versus one without. And subsequent page navigation's uh, performance is comparable. So what does that mean? So Peterson suggested fixes for both Firefox and Microsoft Edge that revert YouTube to a previous version using add-ons. So essentially not using the newest version of YouTube. And he says that YouTube still serves the pre-Polymer design to Microsoft Internet Explorer 11, which launched in 2013 and has been replaced by Edge and suggests that Google could have taken the same same approach with Edge and Firefox. So essentially, instead of knowingly uh, gone with their own product and slowed down everyone else's, They could have said, all right, ours works better on this. We'll push this service to our own browser. And then something with comparable speed will push that to everyone else who uses a different browser. Totally possible. Not the hardest thing in the world. I mean, when you're talking about uh, YouTube, it takes very smart minds to work on it. And obviously, well, to pull a cliche, they have the technology to do it. Google chose not to. So neither Google, Mozilla, Microsoft, nor Peterson immediately responded to requests for comment. And let's see, YouTube had about 1.8 billion people registered viewers every single month and previously said that about 400 hours of video are uploaded every minute. You heard that right, 400 hours of video a minute. Crazy. Crazy. So Chrome is the most popular web browser and accounts for about 60% of website usage. And they said that Firefox accounts for about 5%, while Edge has about 2%. So those numbers, of course, they mean something. Because if someone is an active YouTube watcher, if you consume YouTube videos regularly and you've noticed, you know, kind of maybe subconsciously or something like that, Uh, maybe if you have Chrome and Firefox on on your system and you notice that YouTube works better on Chrome, then you'll naturally gravitate towards Chrome instead of Firefox or even Microsoft Edge or Opera or Safari. You will strictly use the one that is better performing. And if Chrome artificially made that, so or if Google artificially made it so that Chrome is best optimized when everything else could have worked, you know, on par, uh, Google could be in a lot of trouble. So on Tuesday, the latest version of Chrome expanded Google's fight against surveillance and security risk by showing a not secure warning for HTTP sites. Yep, you may notice that now as well. Uh, yeah, and... Um, yeah, I think that's about as far as we're, going to, as we're going to take this one. But just know this probably isn't the last time uh, Google is going to hear about this. If it's a glitch, if it's a bug, then that's something that Google can own up to and fix. But if they purposely or rather only extended some free open source software – to the point where they were the only ones using it, and they were the only ones optimizing for it, and then they made that a requirement. That's anti-competitive. So we'll, uh, yeah, have to wait and see about that one. So let's go ahead and, uh, all right. So we make these title cards. If you go to the website, you'll see them there on the front page. And today's, you know, we of course have who's going to be the guest, and we have. Three images typically about who's what we're going to talk about in the show, mainly in the news segment. So the first one, Little Red Planet, obviously Mars. We talked about water has been found on Mars. It's a it's a cool day. The next one, Mozilla Firefox story we just did. There you go. The third image today is of the brand logo Tommy Hilfiger and. They make clothes. They make good clothes. They make fashionable clothes. Well, now looks like they're going to make tech clothes. Check it out. I, I don't know how to take this. Tommy Hilfiger has launched a ridiculous line of smart clothing that rewards you for wearing it. If this isn't the end of society as we know it, if this doesn't turn people into walking, talking billboards that are more than happy to receive pennies a day for simply wearing someone else's logo, I don't know what is. So this coming to us from TechCrunch, Sarah Perez, saying that here comes more smart clothing nobody asked for. Fashion brand, Tommy Hilfiger uh Yeah, today announced that they launched a new line of men's and women's clothing, which is called Tommy Jeans Explore, which comes with smart chip embedded technology, where unlike, say, Google's project – yeah, where unlike Google and its partner with Levi, the goal is not to offer access to calls, text maps, and music controls that you can't get to your phone – well, uh, you know, where maybe you're riding a bike or something like that. Instead, Figure Smart Clothing aims to reward you with points for wearing Figure clothing. And as the author says, as much as I share the opinion, yes, it's come to this, folks. So the line includes T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, jeans, jackets, caps, and bags, which pair with Tommy Jeans Explore and that's an iOS app over Bluetooth. So once paired, the idea is that the user will compete in challenges and apps to earn points. You get points for things like how often you wear the clothes. So hopefully they uh, don't encourage unsanitary behavior. And for walking around to find heart-shaped, Tommy-branded icons on the app's map. So think of something akin to maybe a Pokemon Go where you have to physically walk to, uh, you know, to a destination to find something. Of course, all while sporting your favorite Tommy Hilfiger-branded blue chips hoodie. Hmm. So the points can be translated into rewards, including gift cards, signed merchandise, and pieces from the Tommy Hilfiger archives, among other things. Saying that, uh, you know, the author says, I guess doling out more Tommy Hilfiger merch to players makes sense because only the people who would spend $90 on smart sweatshirt just to play a marketing campaign's idea of fun have got to be the most seriously devoted or obsessed fans. So... Even the company is aware, uh, seems to be aware that the line's niche appeal, saying in its official announcement that the goal is to create a micro community of brand ambassadors. Yeah, I think micro community is going to be a good way to go about this because it's hard to imagine a lot of people are going to be okay with just being walking billboards for the company. Saying that... uh, The brand, however, is no stranger to experiments and new ideas and technology, but some of its prior developments have been less absurd. And so smart clothing, for the sake of smart clothing, though, as the author says, no, 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 just no. So, yeah, there's a lot of implication here. I don't think this is going to catch on. I don't think this is going to be the thing that makes it really happen. But the idea that you can track when people are wearing your clothes, when they're wearing your clothes, and how far they kind of expose themselves to show off your clothing, uh, maybe exposing yourself isn't the best way to phrase uh, walking around in public. But anyways, it's uh, that's the idea. The more you wear their clothes and the more often people see you wearing the clothes you will get rewards for doing such. Kind of weird. Kind of a kind of a weird kind of a weird way to take smart clothing. So, all right. Uh, let's see, Let's see, let's, see, let's, see. let's talk about. Let's see. I had one of these stories, and let's talk about cord cutting. Why not? We have time for like one or two more stories. And, uh, you know, cord cutting is a topic that comes up often. People who have cut the cord are very self-righteous. I I think of it in the same manner of people who have, I don't know, people who have switched from a gas car to an electric car. I feel like the same kind of self-righteous indignation coming from both. And I think cord cutters, at the same time, overestimate themselves. And I, I, I don't know, like, they're right and they're wrong at the same time for different reasons. So this one coming to us from Fortune, we'll really have to, you know, kind of see what they're kind of offering here. But cord cutting is accelerating rapidly, research says. Maybe. So an acceleration of people dropping their cable TV subscription prompted a leading research firm to increase its forecast of cord cutting by 25%, where about 50 million people in total will have dropped cable by 2021. And uh, eMarketer said in its forecast release on Tuesday, and that's almost 20 million more than today. And 10 million more than researchers estimated for 2021 last year. So let's see, that's almost 20 million more. So about 30 million people have cut the cord. Uh, they're claiming 50 million by 2021, so about three years. And I, I don't know. It's you, of course, have to know the source of the information coming out. Uh, e marketer. So obviously, it's, uh, a marketer who makes money pushing online advertising and advertising in internet-based mediums. So I think they would be very bullish in hoping that people are going to cut the cord in greater numbers. But let's go ahead and continue keeping that in mind, saying that consumers have long cited the increasing price of cable TV packages as the main reason for dropping the service, where a study released last week found that consumers could save on average 85 bucks a month by cutting the cord. But the emergence of cheaper bundles of cable channels available over the internet, like Google's YouTube TV and Dish Network's Sling TV are also prompting more people to to cut the cord. So those are services typically meant to replace cable packages and in some cases served to you by the cable companies and Yeah, they're cheaper, but um, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, they said that while the cable bundle replacement are growing, the main source of video entertainment for cord cutters uh, remains popular internet streaming services that eschew the channel lineups altogether. Uh, YouTube pulls about 192 million U.S. views each month, followed by Netflix with about 148 million monthly viewers, and Amazon Prime Video with about 89 million viewers. So let's see. According to the firm's estimates, about 33 million consumers will have cut the cord by the end of the year, rising to about 50 million and 55 million in 20, uh, 2021 and 2022, respectively. Uh, the trend, yeah, the trend is taking a toll on stock prices and essentially, yeah, um let' see I, you know all of that talk and at the same time they never talked about uh how many cable subscribers are in the us so let's do a quick search here according to let's see uh the statistics show that the number of cable television subscribers in the United states from 2020, uh, from 2010 to 2016. Uh, According to the source, there were about 34.34 million cable subscribers in the United States in 2016. So, you know, it's something, I think that it's more to the fact that the younger generation, the millennials, uh, they are just strictly not signing up for cable as opposed to them actually ever cutting the cord in the first place. But either way, um, it's it might accelerate. One thing to note is that as more people start to cut the cord, as more people uh, never signed up for it in the first place, the remaining consumers to support the infrastructure, to support the uh, you know to support their employees without some massive layoffs, without some massive restructuring uh, to sustain their current business as they know it in losing subscribers, they're going to have to charge more. And the more that they charge for cable, the more people will consider cord cutting, and it will be a vicious cycle until the point the whole thing kind of comes down like a house of cards. When that actually happens, um, I think 2021, 2022 is a pretty bullish estimate. But hey, you know, cord cutting, definitely something to keep an eye out on, on. So, all right. I think we have time for just one more story, if we even have time for that. Uh, any of these that we didn't actually get to. um, All right, how about this one? This one's pretty simple. (laughs) For all of you nerds out there, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the average nerd, the, you know, whatever nerd. I'm talking about the Star Trek fan. Well, if you ever wanted to look like your favorite Vulcan, then you now have the best gift you could ever give someone. And if you're not watching the video portion, highly recommend that you do. But imagine a pair of earbuds that kind of wrap around your ear and nestle oh so snugly, but instead of just having a cord drooping out of your ears like some kind of schmo, instead, you have replica Vulcan ears that will Hug your ear, keep the headphone in, and of course, hey, make it look like a Vulcan. Saying that there are so many Star Trek jokes you can make about these officially licensed wireless earbuds that are modeled after Vulcan ears, but with that color scheme, honestly, they look more like hearing aids than the ears of Captain Spock. So, ThinkGeek is selling the Star Trek Vulcan earbuds for 40 bucks, and they include a talk time of about four to five hours and an inline microphone remote, and they charge in about two hours. So, also included is in the box is a micro USB charging cable and three sets of included silicon tips to keep your Vulcan ears clean. So, unfortunately, there's no word yet of a communicator, so Vulcan wireless earbuds will have to suffice. So I thought that was a good way to you know kind of wrap up today's show. If you wanted something silly, yeah, consider some Vulcan wireless earbuds. So the music means that we're just about done here, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Computer America. Again, if you wanted to tune in for Scott Schober, check us out next week, next Tuesday, and he will be on for the entire hour. And in the meantime, ComputerAmerica.com. Want to make that crystal clear? You should definitely check us out tomorrow on the program. We have a company called Pango Technology and they make a number of uh, yeah, a number of devices and one of them includes uh, you know they're hey, you know what actually wouldn't even spoil it for you because I honestly can't remember. everyone tune in tomorrow Pango Technology, everyone, Computer America. thank you so much. Be sure to check out the podcast if you miss any part of today's show and check us out computeramerica.com. Everyone have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye everyone.